Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. The Agony by George Herbert. Philosophers have measured mountains, fathomed the depth of seas, of states, and kings, walked with a staff to heaven, and traced fountains. But there are two vast, spacious things, the which to measure it doth more behove. Yet few there are that sound them, sin and love. Who would no sin, let him repair unto Mount Olivet. There shall he see a man so wrung with pains that all his hair, his skin, his garments bloody be. Sin is that press and vice which forceth pain to hunt his cruel food through every vein. Who knows not love, let him essay and taste that juice which on the cross a pike did set again a brooch. Then let him say, if ever he did taste the like. Love is that liquor sweet and most divine, which my God feels as blood, but I as wine. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured, that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is Holy Week? What unique ceremonies might families observe at Holy Week services? How might families observe Holy Week in the home? Joining us today to discuss observing Holy Week in the home is Mr. Justin Benson. It's good to be here. This may go without saying, but it is always good to define our terms. What is Holy Week? When does it start? When does it end? Well, Holy Week, holy means set apart, but Holy Week is, is the time of the church where we, where we really slow down and go minute by minute with our Lord through his His triumphal entry into Jerusalem and his passion and his rest in the tomb and his resurrection that follows. And then even his appearing to the, to the 12 or to the 11, excuse me, uh, on that eighth day after Easter. So Holy Week is kicked off. On Palm Sunday, where we process in with palms, and then it goes all the way through the Easter Vigil service on Holy Saturday, where we transition from Lent into Easter, Holy Week into Eastertide during that service. Holy Week generally entails a lot of services, and hopefully families can avail themselves of all of them. Obviously, that is the primary observance of Holy Week that we encourage. So when families go to Holy Week services, what will they see and hear? So Holy Week kicks off with Palm Sunday. So you have the the Sunday services, which are the chief services of the church, uh, generally speaking, uh, the Lord's Day, the, the peak of each week. So you have the Palm Sunday service. And then towards the end of the week, we have what we call the sacred triduum or the holy triduum, which triduum means three. So you have three services that are really one service. So you have Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, and the Easter Vigil. And during these services, we will start the Monday, Thursday service with the invocation, but we will not end with the benediction until the Easter Vigil. So there will be one invocation, one benediction, throughout those three days, because we are in worship for those three days 
as our Lord goes from the upper room, instituting the Lord's Supper, all the way through his his resurrection from the, the dead. So when families go to church, they will see, for example, different colors as they go to those different services. What are some of the colors they might see? So this is a busy week for the altar guild uh, or whoever is on duty to change the pyramids. On Palm Sunday, the colors are generally violet. There are some churches that will have uh, the colors be scarlet, uh, but either scarlet or violet on Palm Sunday. And that'll go all the way through Holy Wednesday. So there are propers for daily divine services throughout the whole whole Holy Week. A lot of our churches don't necessarily celebrate the Holy Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday services. Um, but some do, but they will stay violet for those. And then on Monday, Thursday, there's more of a joyful tone to things. But that will change as the color goes to white for one day. And the greater Gloria comes back in many of our churches. And that stays white until the altar is stripped at the end of that service, the Monday Thursday service, or that part of the service. And then on Good Friday, the liturgical color is black. It's the only day of the year that the liturgical color is black. Now, some a lot of altars will be uh, mostly stripped, and maybe the, the pastor will be wearing black vestments, or some churches do have uh, black paraments that they would put on the altar. And then Easter is either going to shift back to white or some churches will use the color gold. So it's a, it's a busy week in terms of changing out of pyramids, but uh, there's a lot happening. So you're going to see a lot of different colors. Now, in addition to the various colors that families will see on the altar, there are also some different ceremonies that we see during Holy Week that we do not see at other times in the church year? Yeah, there are. And maybe we just break this down by each service because there, are, there is a lot. And the, the Palm Sunday service uh, is generally starts out reading the actual account of Palm Sunday, the Matthew 21 account generally, which is also the gospel reading for Advent 1. But that's done in the back of the church, and then uh, that after that gospel reading is read, oftentimes children or even members of the congregation, depending on the size of the church, will process in behind the the cross, the crucifix, with uh, with palms, and we will sing "All Glory, Loud and Honor," uh, which the church has been doing this for for a thousand years. Uh, processing in with greenery, um, palms. We can we can easily get those now in our northern areas, but sometimes it may have been evergreen, whatever sort of greenery they could find. And they process in singing all glory, loud and honor. And then the, the service really shifts. There's this joy and pomp, singing all glory, loud and honor, waving the palm branches, children uh, processing in. And the intro it for Palm Sunday is from Psalm uh, 22. And it starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right away, verse one there. And that tone of that service changes. And then the gospel reading for Palm Sunday is the Passion according to St. Matthew. So it's a long reading. And Palm Sunday, as we'll notice with all of these services during Holy Week, they're long. 
we can't be the church of the Lutheran hour uh, during this week because the services just are longer than an hour with the, the, the longer intro and a very long gospel reading. Palm Sunday service is probably going to be more like an hour and a half rather than an hour, if that's what you're used to. So we slow down, we pay attention, um, and this is our first opportunity during Holy Week um, in the church to hear the Passion reading. So as we go through the week, if your church does celebrate Holy Monday, Holy Tuesday, and Holy Wednesday readings, so the Holy Monday reading is, is, is the reading from John where our Lord is anointed. Uh, but then Holy Tuesday, um, we are going to hear from St. Mark, the Passion account of St. Mark. And then on Holy Wednesday, we're going to hear the Passion account of St. Luke. Now those Holy Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday services, there's not a whole lot of special ceremony. They're pretty normal for this time of the year. We're omitting the glory of pottery. The images are veiled. Um, certainly all of that is going on. But other than that, it's their normal services. But then when things really shift is when we get to Maundy Thursday. So we've heard three of the four passion accounts, or the passion accounts of three of the four gospel readings, right? Uh, the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Well, now on Maundy Thursday, we are going to hear from John uh, chapter 13, the account of our Lord washing his disciples' feet, um, and where he gives a commandment to them to love. And that's what Maundy, the word Maundy is Latin for mandate or commandment. The service is really going to be centered around the institution of the Lord's Supper. So uh, Holy Communion certainly is offered. Um, we are going to sing communion hymns. The hymn of the day is either going to be, O Lord, we praise thee, or Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior. You might sing both of those hymns. You're probably going to sing just about all communion hymns that service or the majority of them are going to be, because we're really going to be thinking about the commemoration of the Lord's Supper. So that service is mostly normal. Uh, the greater Gloria, the Gloria Excelsis comes back. But then we're going to get to the after the distribution, after we are done distributing the elements and things are kind of cleaned up from that, it's going to be very stark. And Psalm 22 is going to be spoken or sung, and the altar is going to be stripped. And this is a very jarring moment of the week. It's kind of like, uh, I've heard it described as seeing the things moved out of your childhood home. It It is jarring, and the church looks very strange as you leave in silence after that service. So you're going to come back on Good Friday to a, to a stripped-down altar. And Good Friday, there's a couple of different services that the church offers there is the chief service, which is supposed to be held between noon and 3 p.m. Um, that doesn't always work, but that's that's the goal. That's the best practice. And then there is a, a tenebrae vesper service that can be held in the evening. And some churches do both of these. And then there are some churches that actually have what they call a tre ore, which is a three-hour long service from 12 until 3. <clears throat> but the chief service, and maybe we'll talk about that uh, mostly here, the chief service is a, it's similar to our normal divine service, but there are some things added and some things stripped away. So we're going to come in and we're just going to start with an opening collect. And then uh, we will do an Old Testament, an epistle, and then the gospel reading is the Passion According to St. John.
So that's the first part of that service is really the the <clears throat> service of the word. So we will read the the Passion of St. John, which will be the fourth and final Passion reading of the week. And then after that, and there's generally hymns that are interspersed amongst uh, that reading, amongst before and after the reading. And then a sermon is preached. And then there's the bidding prayer, where we really pray for all needs of, of people, um, from those in the church, those outside the church, those in civil society, etc. And then after the bidding prayer is the adoration of the cross. So we are going to actually remove the veil from the main altar crucifix. And there's uh, some ceremony there with the reproaches and the adoration of the cross. Um, oftentimes, uh, uh, or at least in our, our modern times, which is this is, this is an, uh, bringing back of an ancient practice, but we'll sing, sing my tongue, the glorious battle. And there really is a tone of victory during that service. This is not a funeral for Jesus, okay? We're not sad for Jesus. We are sad for our, because of our own sins, but we're not sad for Jesus. Um, he did this willingly for us. This is a gift we're receiving. But there is really a tone of proclamation of victory. And that is definitely brought about in the hymns of, of Good Friday. And it's kind of funny, uh, at our congregation at least, it seems like Christmas Eve and Good Friday are the two days of the church here where we just sing hymns like crazy. Um, we're so much the point where we actually run out of certain numbers in the, in the hymn number box for the hymn board because we, we are singing so many hymns. And then after the adoration of the cross is the service of the sacrament. That's usually stripped down a little bit that we don't sing the canticles. We're just going to do the Lord's Prayer and the Words of Institution, and then we will sing uh, the Royal Banners Forward Go as the service ends. Again, that that tone of victory. But again, the service does not end with a benediction because we are continuing in worship. Uh, and, and as the church darkens on Good Friday, we come back to a dark church on the evening of Holy Saturday. So it's generally dark or just about dark. It's dusk in the day. Later in the evening, we come back to a dark church. We have a fire out front, light the Paschal candle. We go into the church, and then we read up to four to 12 readings from the Old Testament about the story of, about God's story of salvation throughout the Old Testament. And there are four readings that must be part of that. That includes the account of creation, the account of the flood, the parting of the Red Sea, and then Daniel's account of the three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And you really have this, there's a lot of water tone there. You have creation, the flood, and the Red Sea, the deliverance of the Red Sea. So baptism is a big theme of this. In the ancient church, this was the time that children were baptized and adults. Not so much anymore, but that was the case then where we, we really ponder baptism. Whereas, you know, with the Monday Thursday service, we're pondering the Lord's Supper. Holy Saturday, it's, it's baptism. And then after the readings are read, there's the rumors of baptism is first, and then there's the litany of the resurrection. And then we, we finally say, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the hymn of the day for the Easter vigil is, Come you faithful, raise the strain. 
by St. John of Damascus. And that's just a perfect hymn for that, that service. Come you faithful, raise the strain of triumphant gladness. God has brought his Israel into joy from sadness. Loosed from Pharaoh's bitter yoke, Jacob's sons and daughters. Led them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. And that hymn goes on. And then finally in the fifth stanza, it starts with, Alleluia, now we cry to our king immortal. So the hymn kind of gradually builds up, really follows the pattern of that Easter vigil service. And then finally in the last stanza, you you, you just burst out with the Alleluia. And, uh, and here we are. It's Easter. Christ is risen. So we made it through Holy Week. It's interesting how the church in her wisdom, and we always are bringing up the church in her wisdom, the traditions of the church, they all teach. And the tradition of the world, if the world even notices Easter, you know, the world probably... Uh, you know, if, if there's mention of Easter out in the world, it's probably rabbits and eggs and maybe uh, chicks, you know, these sorts of things. So, so even in that, there is this confession of, of life, you know, and, and new life and, and all of these sorts of things. We can't truly celebrate life unless we have walked through the agony of death. And it's interesting to ponder how our world, and we're recording this in 2021, and so we've we've been living in these times of extreme fear of death and extreme avoidance of anything that could potentially cause death. And here we are celebrating Jesus' victory over death. Obviously, it's perfect timing every single year. But but the weight of and the, the significance of that victory over death that all of Holy Week leads us through is absolutely wonderful. And I was thinking about, as you were talking about the progression, that on Palm Sunday, the introit and the gradual and the tract are all from Psalm 22. And it's kind of cool how on Palm Sunday, we're already being set up for heading into that triduum. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I mentioned that we have four gospel readings. Really, there's five passion accounts in the Bible. I suppose there's six if you include Isaiah 50, 53. But Psalm 22 is really an account of the passion of Christ, right? <clears throat> That's David's account of it. And we get that partially on Palm Sunday but then we get the whole thing on Monday, Thursday. So there really is a, a passion reading on Monday, Thursday too. Um, it's it's Psalm it's from Psalm Psalm twenty two, and that is certainly part of it. There's kind of the old saying: Jesus 
Jesus lived Psalm 22 so we can live Psalm 23. There's a lot of truth to that, where Psalm 23 becomes kind of the Easter Psalm. And certainly on what we call Good Shepherd Sunday, the third Sunday of Easter, that's that's right in the center of things. But yeah, it's it's quite remarkable how Psalm 22 is really part of, part of our week, and it, the Holy Week really kicks off with that psalm. As we observe Holy Week, we spend, or potentially spend, but hopefully spend, a lot of time at church. But we also, of course, spend time at home. What can we do at home to continue the observance of Holy Week? Sure. No, that's a that's a really good question. And uh, one of the, the books that we refer to is about the Von Trapp family. And they were Roman Catholics, so there are a lot of similarities to the things that they do. They would go to the same services that we do, but they certainly look at things a little bit differently, uh, certainly with how they deal with saints and works righteousness and some of those sorts of things. But I think she draws a good framework of things that we as Lutherans could, could do. Uh, she mentioned that spring cleaning is common on Holy Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and then your house is spick and span for the sacred triduum and Easter, which sounds like, in theory, a great idea. Maybe not so much in real life, but uh, go for it if you can do that. And then really having simple meals on Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday. Uh, the adults may want to fast on those, on certainly on Good Friday. But then also, you know, on Holy Saturday, as you get ready for, for the Easter celebration, that's a good day to decorate Easter eggs. Um, get ready for the Paschal Feast and do some of those things at home. There are different crafts that you can do, uh, coloring or creating images from the Passion account, you know, chickens and uh, palm branches and different things like that that the children can, can do. It's also a good idea to go through these passion readings, maybe a little bit slower at home, break them up a little bit, discuss different details of them. And then, of course, the singing of the hymns. Um, there's so many great hymns. And use this as an opportunity to teach your children more hymns. That's always a good thing. So if we were to commend to our listeners some hymns that they might want to draw out and teach to their children or sing with their children, even if they don't take the time to memorize them this week. But what are some hymns that we should maybe keep at the at the fore in our home observance of Holy Week? Yeah, I think All Glory, Loud, and Honor is a great one. Uh, it has that refrain that makes it easy for children to sing. And children just love this hymn. They love singing it loud. It's it's a very easy hymn to learn and sing. It's an ancient hymn. Uh, and it's really nice if they learn a couple stanzas of it. So when they're marching on Palm, on Palm Sunday, they can just sing it from, from memory. So that's a good one uh, to kick off Holy Week. But then as we kind of get into Holy Week more, I think the hymn, A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth by Paul Gerhardt is really the one that rises to the top um, for me uh, and the way I see it in terms of Lutheran hymns for Holy Week. A Lamb Goes Uncomplaining Forth. It's just beautiful. The poetry is beautiful. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a hymn that children can also sing quite well. Uh, it's 438 in LSB. 
Another one is Lamb of God, pure and holy. That hymn actually is a form of the Agnus Dei that can be used during the divine service, but it does have, it repeats itself three times, with the exception of the third stanza. It's the same way that the Agnus Dei is during the divine service. So that's a good one on during Holy Week to sing, and you should sing that in church some as well. And then finally, uh, really the, the Good Friday hymn, another one by Paul Gerhardt, or a hymn that was he may have inherited that was retooled, but O oh, Sacred Head Now Wounded. That is a another uh, great hymn that you can teach to our children. Bernard of Clairvaux wrote that, but then Paul Gerhardt uh, retooled that after the Reformation. And then the last hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, which is actually, I think, from, from the Brits. Uh, it's not from the Lutherans, but it's it's one that children really pick up on, and our children love it. It's it's an easy one for them to learn, and it really kind of pulls out of the language out of Isaiah 53, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. So uh, great hymns. Uh, go ahead and sing those in your home. Teach them to your children. Have them learn them in addition to reading the readings. Mr. Benson serves as president of Wittenberg Academy. Justin, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. It was a joy to be here and have a blessed Holy Week. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted, see him dying on the tree. Thus begins the Holy Week hymn. The whole hymn draws the senses into Jesus' final hours. Stanza 1 urges us to see him. Stanza 2 urges us to hear him. The crucifixion was a very sensory experience, both for Jesus and for those around him. We truly cannot fathom the experience. But artists through the ages have, just as have hymn writers and poets, pondered Jesus' passion and brought us, the observer, into the experience as best they could. A book that brings all of this together, and which is our book worth reading for this episode, is He Was Crucified, Reflections on the Passion of the Christ. This book is by Gerard Joseph Stanley Sr., a medical doctor, and Kent Burrison, a professor at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. This book contains beautiful art. Many of the pieces are some of the most iconic paintings, drawings, and woodcuts of the events of Jesus' Passion. Interspersed among the art are scripture passages, collects, quotes, and hymn stanzas. The art, scripture, collects, quotes, and hymn stanzas alone make this a wonderful coffee table book and source of endless page-turning and reading for all ages. But that is not all. I mentioned that Gerard Joseph Stanley Sr. was a medical doctor. In He Was Crucified, Dr. Stanley takes readers through a medical explanation of the physical and mental anguish experienced by Jesus throughout his passion. It goes without saying that even with all of the resources, explanations, and depictions of Jesus' passion, we still cannot conceive of what it was to take on the sins of the world. The Roman crucifixion process was an ordeal unparalleled 
throughout history, but that paled in comparison to the ordeal of bearing the sins of the world, of being the propitiation for our sins, of taking on the wrath of the Father and justifying the world to the Father. Even though Jesus' passion is beyond our comprehension, nevertheless, he was crucified, helps us join the hymn writer and sing, Jesus, I will ponder now on your holy passion. With your spirit me endow for such meditation. Grant that I, in love and faith, may the image cherish of your suffering, pain, and death, that I may not perish. Our word worth repeating for episode 45 is crucifixion. Crucifixion is the nailing or fastening of a person to a cross for the purpose of putting him to death. The act or punishment of putting a criminal to death by nailing him to a cross. The book He Was Crucified, Reflections on the Passion of Christ by Gerard Joseph Stanley Sr., and edited by Kent Burrison, tells us this about crucifixion. As a means of capital punishment, crucifixion was outlawed in the Roman Empire in A.D. 341 by Emperor Constantine. Since then, the practice of crucifixion has has been seen from time to time. On February 5th, 1597, Father Paul Miki, a Jesuit missionary, and three of his companions were crucified together in Nagasaki, Japan. There are accounts of prisoners held by the Austro-Hungarian army who were crucified while being held captive in the mid-1800s. World War II prisoners at the Dachau concentration camp in the 1930s were tortured and killed by crucifixion, while those who held them documented the events in the name of scientific experimentation. The cross in early Christianity was not the symbol of salvation that it has become today. Instead, it was a highly offensive symbol that imposed a tremendous burden on the earliest preachers of Christ and the faith. Crucifixion was a form of capital punishment generally reserved for slaves, traitors, deserters, and revolutionaries, among whom Jesus was numbered. His death by crucifixion implied that Christ was a criminal, not a king, revolutionary, not the savior, a slave, not a ruler. As Paul states, the cross was a scandal and an offense. As far as the archaeological evidence indicates, imagery of Jesus crucified or of the cross was not helpful or appealing in the early church's mission of proclaiming Christ as the Savior of the world. It was not until the 5th and 6th centuries that the crucifix became a symbol of the Christian faith. The earliest crucifixes depicted Jesus not as a suffering and reviled man, but standing in front of the cross with arms stretched toward heaven. He was pictured in his glory. Not until several centuries later is Jesus depicted in the fullness of his passion and death as a man who was crucified on a cross. At Golgotha, the place of the skull, the site of execution, Jesus was offered a mixture of wine and myrrh called gall. 
This bitter mixture traditionally was offered as a mild analgesic to dull the senses before the act of crucifixion. Today, gall would be equivalent to a weak mixture of acetaminophen in a wine solution. Once this mixture touched his lips, Jesus refused to drink it. More ceremonial than effective, gall would have done little to relieve the pain that followed. Upon arriving at Golgotha, Jesus was thrown on top of the patibulum, which would have been placed on the ground after being carried to the site by Simon. This action would have forced dirt into the wounds on Jesus' back, head, and legs, causing the blood to coagulate, harden, and dry. The crown of thorns would have been forced deeper into his scalp, creating more intense pain and further bleeding. The cross height, as well as its design, have been debated for centuries. As, indica as indicated earlier, the Tau cross, or low cross, which resembles a capital T, was used most commonly in that region of the Roman Empire. A Latin cross, which was taller and shaped like a lowercase t, would have required special preparation. Because the crucifixion of Jesus was not planned and followed trials and a verdict rendered in just a few short hours, the fixed upright stipes of Golgotha would most likely have been employed in this hasty situation. The stipes have been estimated to be approximately six or seven feet in height. At this height, the patibulum could be affixed quite easily to the stipes, and the feet would have been approximately one foot off the ground. Thus, the feet of the victim could have been easily attached to the stipes with only a slight bend of the legs, an easy task for the Roman detail. The victim's mouth would have hung at a level even, or, even with or slightly lower than the level of the patibulum, approximately seven feet off the ground. When Jesus said, I thirst, he was offered a drink on a sponge. Most likely this drink was posca, a sour wine mixed with water and perhaps egg, a drink common to Roman soldiers. The Roman soldier's short javelin was approximately three feet long, with a metal spear tip adding another foot to the overall length. When held at arm's length, the javelin with the sponge attached would have reached approximately seven feet into the air from the ground. For many years, exegetes and scientists alike have argued about the method and placement of the nails or spikes used to affix Christ's arms and legs to the cross. Many exegetes believe Jesus' arms were suspended with nails driven through his hands. In 1953, P. Barbet conducted an experiment in which he tied weights on cadaver arms to determine if using a nail through the web spaces of the hands between the wrist bones or elsewhere could hold the weight of a crucified man. He determined that the division of weight between the two oblique and symmetrical forces means that each point is bearing considerably more than half of the total weight. Thus, nails placed into the hands would need to hold firmly in place and support the equivalent of nearly 240 pounds per nail. He concluded that a nail driven through only the soft tissues of the hand would not hold the weight of a man suspended and writhing on a cross. The nail would have been pulled through the full thickness of the hand if it was driven only through these tissues. However, Barbet did conclude that the area between the bones of the wrist and the end of the forearm's radial bone is sufficiently strong to hold the weight of a man during crucifixion. 
In their studies of anatomy, the Romans considered the wrist to be part of the hand. Thus, as the Gospels indicate, the nails would have been driven through the wrists, considered as part of the hand, which is also the location of the nail wounds in the hands of the figure on the Shroud of Turin. The spike or nail used to affix the victim to the cross would have been five to seven inches in length, with a square shaft about three-eighths of an inch in diameter. It would have been slightly thinner but longer than a modern railroad spike. Most likely, the edges of the shaft would have been squared off. The placement of these spikes was intended to pass through or crush the nerves without disrupting the blood vessels. At the top of the palm, there is a crease formed when bringing the thumb and the little finger together. This crease is at the junction of the short muscles of the thumb and little finger. Behind this ridge, and approximately one inch wide, is a thick fibrous ligament connecting the bones on the little finger side to the bones on the thumb side. This transverse carpal ligament forms a tunnel to the wrist to protect the median nerve that connects to the thumb, fingers, and hand. The median nerve, nerve is the primary sensory and motor nerve of the hand and most of the fingers. The release of this ligament today is commonly referred to as carpal tunnel release. Bringing the thumb and little finger together creates a hollow or soft spot just above the carpal ligament at the main folding line of the wrist. This hollow area, referred to as Dustot's place, allows easy access for placing a nail through the wrist bones. Passing a nail through this space would not break any bones and would provide full weight-bearing ability to the carpal ligament. The nail would have crushed or partially severed the median nerve, causing intense and continuous pain. Crushing the median nerve would have caused the thumb to flex in toward the palm of the hand and created a claw-like contraction of the index long and ring fingers. With the squared-off spikes holding the arms in place, the continuous pain from the crushed median nerve would have intensified with any movement of the arms or body. The image on the Shroud of Turin reveals thumbs retracted into the palms with only four fingers on each hand visible. A nail driven into Dustot's space would have would cause severe pain, but would damage only venous structures with very slow blood loss. This is because the arteries of the hand run on both sides of the wrist. After entering the hand, they arch further down in the palm rather than across Dustot's place. No damage to arterial blood flow would have occurred from spikes driven into the body in this area. Thus, rapid blood loss was avoided, serving to prolong the agony of crucifixion. The Romans were experts at crucifixion and knew how to cause the most pain with the least amount of blood loss, making this the most painful and drawn-out process of humiliation, suffering, and death imaginable. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.